This is Nancy Piercy, and today I'm on the Radical Radiance podcast. Hey friends, welcome back to the Radical Radiance podcast. My name is Rebecca George. I am your host, and I'm so excited to be back with you today for another really important conversation. We are going to be sitting down with Professor Nancy Piercy to talk all about her newest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. I was so excited to have my husband, Dustin, join in on this conversation as we have both looked up to Professor Piercy for quite some time, and we're both excited to talk to her about this new book. So best-selling author, Professor Nancy Piercy has a knack for tackling the tough issues of our day. A former agnostic, Piercy has hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And in this book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, she takes readers on a fascinating journey through American history to discover how the secular script for masculinity turned toxic and what action we can take to fix it. So I actually think you're going to leave this conversation really encouraged, and I hope it provides some language for you for maybe some cultural conversations that you weren't quite sure how to have. So join me and Dustin as we welcome Professor Nancy Piercy to the show today. Nancy, we are so honored to be joined by you today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I am so excited to have my husband, Dustin, joining me for this conversation. Every once in a while, when I get to chat with someone that he has also long admired, he joins me and we'll co-interview. And so people are used to hearing his voice, but hi, welcome back. Thank you. And <laughs> and just to let you know, I, I consider you one of the greatest thinkers of the modern age. And that's, I don't say that lightly. I'm, I'm truly, I have recommended your books as, as much as, there's, there, there are about three or four books that I recommend on a regular basis. And Total Truth and Finding Truth are two of those books. And I have given those out like candy. And so I'll buy them, I have, them, I have some on my shelf, and people will come and I will say, you know what you need? You need to read this book. And I'll give them a copy of the book to take home so they can read your book. So so it is an honor for me to just be able to talk to you in person. So, Well, thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, Total Truth has sold more than any other book, but I'm glad that you found Finding Truth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Saving Leonardo. So. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, they're, they're not you know as big a sellers as Total Truth, but... Um, but yes, each one has its own unique Absolutely. character and, and finding truth. Finding truth, I often get invited to do teacher training workshops on. Ah, you can see why. I because see. it doesn't just say, here's how a Christian can answer these secular isms. It says, here's a method, a strategy that you can use to answer any ism that you run right, into. Right. And, and so I, I think it's wonderful. I love this book. I love teaching it, but it's mostly teachers who have picked up on it. And I of can course, understand. Saving, saving Leonardo the same way because, you know, uh, I get mostly invited to speak at classical Christian schools that are trying to have a more integrated curriculum. Mm -hmm. you know, so they love the way Saving Leonardo brings in philosophy mm -hmm. and science and the arts and literature, uh, and so it, it kind of shows, wait, if you want to understand the modern world, you have to understand, you have to understand it as a totality, you have to know all of these different areas, and so mm. uh, it's kind of like a, 
one book where you can get all the different <laughs> subject matter. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I will also brag on my husband and say he's a former educator. Before he went oh, into yeah. ministry, he was a teacher for how many years? Uh, for 10 years. 10 years, yeah. Well, literature, Latin, and drama. So Yes. So it's no accident that I think he, he appreciates your style, oh. your teaching style, and your writing. And so, uh, yeah, as we've said five times, it is just a joy to get to meet you and get to have this conversation. I'm so excited to dig into your newest book. It's called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And I just would love to open up the conversation with how have you seen this pop up in culture? What made you want to write the book? Talk to us about kind of that, that backstory, if you will. Yeah, I have to say I was pretty surprised at how socially accepted it has become to attack masculinity and men. Yeah. So one of the uh, articles that caught my eye, for example, was in the Washington Post. It had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? I thought, really? In a mainstream publication like that? Or this was more understandable, but it was the Huffington Post. An editor tweeted, hashtag kill all men. Uh, wow. You can buy t-shirts now that say, so many men, so little ammunition. Mm. And there wow. are books out now with very blunt titles like, I hate men, and no <sighs> good men, and are men necessary? So... Mm. I, this is what really caught my eye and said, you know, we've got to get to the bottom of this. And then there were even men who were jumping on the bandwagon. There was a fairly well-known male author who wrote a book in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Wow. And then this one is not in the book because it was more recent, but you may have seen it. Uh, it was in the news. The director of the movie Avatar, James Cameron, said testosterone is a toxin. You have to work it out of your system. So no wow. wonder about half of American men, 46% of American men said that they agreed with the statement, these days society seems to punish men just for acting like men. Mm. And, and the, the, the more poignant one I found was by a psychotherapist who writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. And she says, the young men are really feeling it more than any. She said, the mm. young men coming into my practice now are feeling defeated, demoralized, um, and, you know, put down because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. Yeah. So I think, especially for our young men, it, it's time for us to say, stop. Uh, you know what? Here's a, the most recent one. I'll give you this because I'm about to uh, use this in a, in a talk. I just ran into it. There was a news tabloid from Australia, and so it's kind of large like this, right? So it has a large image of a boy who looks like he's about seven years old. Mm. And the title is, How Do We Stop This Kid From Becoming a Monster? Mm. Wow. What? And underneath, the subtitle was, How Schools Should Address Toxic Masculinity. And I thought, what ideology teaches us that seven-year-old boys... You know, that we yeah. should look at them as monsters in the making. That yeah. is incredibly harmful. You know, talk about teaching young men to hate themselves. You know, I, this, this is what I'm going to use in, my, in a talk that I'm upcoming. I'm going to use this opening image and say, okay, let's take this on. You know, should we really yeah. be teaching seven-year-olds that they're in danger of becoming monsters? Mm. It's time to turn the, turn the tables on this kind of rhetoric. Yeah. Well, and, and the common 
the common assumption, if not the common assertion, is that men are are doing really well, you know, it, as as compared to women. That's that's what you would hear. And does your research back that assertion up? Yeah, so I used to get that from my female students, by the way, all the time. I, I sure. teach at Houston Christian University, and they would say things like, but wait a minute, you know, men ultimately reach the highest levels as CEOs and in politics, presidents, prime ministers, and even like Hollywood film producers. Yes, that's about 5 to 10% of men. <laughs> yeah. But it turns out that on average, men are actually doing worse both mm. relative to women and relative to where men used to be. So mm. in education, for example, boys are falling behind at all levels, starting with kindergarten. You know, that seven-year-old wow. boy <laughs> that I just described, you know, he doesn't have as good fine motor control as the girls, and so he can't operate his scissors. So already in kindergarten, boys are starting yeah. to fall behind, and all the way through high school and into college. The average college now is 60% female students and 40% male. And some places it's higher. When I started at Houston Christian, where I am now, it was 70-30, 70 70% female. And so we've been working to try to equalize it. Places like Harvard are instituting behind the scenes affirmative action to, to attract more men more male students because they know that eventually women won't come either if there's no boys there. (laughs) But graduate school as well, there are more women than men in graduate school and even in professional schools like law and medicine. Mm. And then after education, you know, as adults, men are falling behind on a whole host of measures. You know, they're more likely to be mentally ill, addicted to drugs and alcohol, homeless, criminals, you know, uh, 95% of people in prisons are male. Uh, And even um, unemployment has gone down recently. It's not showing up in the normal statistics because they've stopped looking for work. So the researchers had to dig deeper and they now tell us that male unemployment is at Great Depression era levels. That was a shock to me because we think of that as a really terrible time in our history. But male unemployment is at Great Depression era levels, and the life expectancy is also going down. So um, there's a, and relative to women, women have stayed the same, so it's not a general trend. And there's a magazine called The New Scientist that said, the major demographic factor now in early death is being male. Mm. So I do think it's time for us to say, isn't it time to have compassion on men and boys? Isn't it time to, you know, change the rhetoric and start asking, should we maybe have some special programs that mm. support men and boys and affirm them in their unique masculine strengths and affirm them for being the men that God created them to be, that this is inherently good, right? Men are bigger, yeah. stronger, faster, more risk-taking, more aggressive. And these are good qualities because God made them that way. This is That's pre-fall. Right. That's right. right. These are not products of the fall. This is how God made men. And so I think that we need to affirm them uh, both, in the, you know, both in the church and in the wider culture. Yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned the, that idea of um, that underlying idea of design, that, that God has designed men in a certain way. And, and in your book, uh, which is incredible, uh, I, I read your book in, in prep for today, and it, it's 
it's masterful. I can, uh, and I'm not just gushing here. It's truly, it's truly masterful. Um, you talk about the difference in good men and real men. And could you explain that difference between those two? Because I think that, that a lot of times we would, we would look at good men and real men and culture would look at that in a completely different way than the Bible indicates a good man and a real man. Well, the good news is that even secular people understand what the good man is. That's because mm. this is coming out of a sociological study. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give you the background that, that's, not, that's not in the book. This has proved to be the most controversial book I've ever written, which did take me by surprise because my earlier book, Love Thy Body, dealt with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which are hot-button hot issues today. Sure. But this was more controversial, and I, I led a lot of uh, classes, I led a lot of reading groups, I like to get a lot of feedback to um, rub off the rough edges, and when they would tell their family and friends about it, invariably the first question was, whose side is she on? Uh, mm, <laughs> sure. With that tone, right? <laughs> whose side is she on? And men tended to just assume that if a woman's writing a book on masculinity, that I was some kind of male-bashing feminist. Yeah. And more conservative people, or more, more, more progressive people, sorry, I got the wrong word there. More progressive people tended to assume that I was a conservative, um, reactionary, angry culture warrior. Mm. And so I put this study right at the beginning of the book to say that we don't, we're not either for or against. You know, we're, yeah. we're for the good man. And we can think critically, you know, about some of the secular scripts that are out there. So, and this was done by a secular sociologist, by the way. He gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with a very clever experiment where he asks young men two questions. First, he asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? Mm. And all around the globe, young men have no trouble answering that. They immediately start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Look out for the little guy, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And the sociologists would say, where did you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know, it's just in the air we breathe. Mm. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm. Then he would follow up with a second question, which was, what does it mean if I say man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, that's completely different. They would say, no, no, that means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, um, be, be competitive, get rich, get laid. Mm. And so, I'm using their language. Sure. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so even a secular sociologist said that is fascinating that yeah. all around the globe, men intrinsically, inherently, innately know what it means to be the good man. Mm. I would say they're made in God's image, right? Mm-hmm. And right. Or, or or Romans two, they have a conscience. Yeah. Or even general revelation, right? That general revelation is what we know just because of the way God created the world, mm. uh, as opposed to special revelation, which is the Bible. Men look look out there and they know what it means to be a good man. I found that incredibly encouraging. Yeah. And what what it means is. Well, <laughs> When we talk to men about these things, it doesn't usually work very well to call men toxic. Right? They don't respond well. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Surprisingly. 
But what we can do is we can be utterly confident then that they do, in the heart of hearts, know what it means to be a good man. They do aspire yeah. to be that. And so if, there's, if we can find ways to tap into that, to affirm it, support mm. it, and encourage it, that gives us a much more positive way to deal with these issues. The Rebecca Reads book for October is Numbering Our Days, Combating Anxiety and the Power of Small Intentional Moments by Nicole Suvar. We know our time on earth is limited and we want our days to matter for God's kingdom. But how do we break free from the spiral of anxiety and stay focused on God's purposes for us? With short daily devotions and practical wisdom, numbering our days will help you turn from anxiety toward a life that brings Him glory and points others to Him. Get your copy of Numbering Our Days on Amazon or at the link in the show notes today. Radical Radiance is brought to you this month by Blue Planet Optics. They are on a mission to change the way you see the world, quite literally. The best part, every time you purchase a box of contact lenses from them, you're helping to give the gift of sight to someone in need. Also, they are serious about reducing waste. Their new take-back program is coming out later this year where you can return your used contact lens waste for amazing discounts and store credit. Visit Blue Planet Optics at blueplanetoptics.co to shop today. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. Something that I was reading as I was I was preparing for today as well in the book, you talk early on about just how common it has become to just see the denial of men being the head of the household. And I just would love to hear you unpack that a little bit and where you found that maybe we're defining headship in the wrong way and why ultimately this is such an issue for many Christians to understand in the context of today's culture. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because um, because I don't know if you watch follow Twitter, but there have been several Twitter storms <laughs> on this question. You know, yeah. on the one hand, sort of egalitarians attacking the books, saying that it gives ammunition <laughs> to complementarians. And then sort of the extreme patriarchalist mm. using the same language. You're giving ammunition to the egalitarians. Well, the irony is that I, I what's unique about my book is that I go to the uh, secular social scientists because what they were doing is they were looking at evangelicals. They weren't looking at sort of this in-house debate of a complementarian, mm. egalitarian. They were sure. looking at evangelicals because the secular world is saying that that if you have the evangelical men, because they believe in some sort of male headship in the home, that theology is going to turn them into overbearing, tyrannical, abusive patriarchs. Yeah. And so, well, I, let me give you just one example. Uh, it was easy to find examples. But, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one. Um, the, this was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. So what happened is the social scientists were looking at these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You're making these yeah. charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I quote a dozen or so studies that all found that the secular critics are wrong that uh. they debunk the facts totally debunk them that that evangelical men test out as the highest in terms of being the most loving husbands and fathers 
So mm-hmm. they, they interview the wives. By the way, yes, they do interview the wives separately. I get asked that a lot. <laughs> sure. <laughs> People say, oh, well, of course she's going to say she's happy. Her husband's sitting right there. <laughs> but no, these were from large secular objective databases. M- most of them. You know, there were different, different studies, but most of them are drawing on these large databases. Women were interviewed separately, and they test out as reporting the highest level of happiness with their mm-hmm. husband's expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend more time with their children than any other group, 3.5 hours per week more than secular men. Evangelical couples divorce at a low, the lowest rate of any major group in America, 35% lower than secular couples. And wow. then the, the big surprise, they have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America. In fact, sometimes a quote will crystallize it. So let me give you one quote. This is my favorite one. Um, this is my, um, the, the researcher who did the largest study on this is Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia, and he's considered one of the top marriage researchers in the nation. In fact, he gets invited to um, publish in places like the New York Times. So it gives you some idea of his status. Sure. Uh, so this, right, how many Christians get published in the New York Times? Truly. So this, this <laughs> is <many>. from, <laughs> and by the way, he's, um, he's Catholic. And so when he says evangelical Protestants test out the highest, they test out higher than Catholics. So he's not just wow. defending his own tribe, so to sure. speak. Right. He says, um, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. They're looking especially at the wives because, you know, the assumption is these men are overbearing, tyrannical, abusive patriarchs. No, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. Mm. And then he turns to his secular colleagues. Sociology is one of the more highly secularized fields. And he says... Academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. Mm. So this is amazing. (laughs) You know, this is not just a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid empirical research. This is evidence-based findings, and we should be bringing it into the church mm. to start with, you know, to, um, mm. to, to encourage Christian men. And, um, and, and they need it, right? I mean, when I told my sure. class at Houston Christian University that I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so we need this message, even in the church. <laughs> And then I think, you know, for apologetics purposes, it's also really good to get it out there into the public and to show that, Mm -hmm. you know, this, that the the objective evidence shows that Christian men are actually the most loving husbands and fathers. That Christianity does have the power to reconcile the sexes, as Mm -hmm. I put it in the subtitle of my book. You contrast that idea of men who are seeking biblical masculinity with those Christian men who are taking the approach of the secular notion of masculinity and, and where, where that divide takes place and the distinction between those two and the contrast between those two. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up because it's important to have that balance. So the, the first pushback I always get is, but haven't we all heard that mm. Christians mm. divorce at the same rate as everyone else? And uh, in, fact, in fact, in my research, I found that's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. Sure. <laughs> and We've so, all heard it. You've all heard it. You've probably said it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the researchers went back to the data, and they made a very important distinction between men who are, in fact, committed, you know, regular churchgoers, um, authentic in their Christian faith, versus nominal Christian men. And my students don't know what the word nominal means, so I have to explain <laughs> to them. N-O-M is Latin for in name only. Oh, you used to teach Latin. You... Right. Yes. Nomen. Nomen. I did not, though. So tell me, Nancy. <laughs> Nomen name. Yes. In name only. So right. these are men who, on a survey like this, might check the Baptist box. Sure. But who don't actually attend church, or rarely, if at all. And they test out shockingly different. They do test out with all the toxic stereotypes. Their wives mm. report the lowest level of happiness. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They divorce at a higher rate than secular men, 20% mm. higher than secular men. And then the real shocker is they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than secular men. Wow. Wow. And so these men are taking language like headship and submission, but not getting the biblical meaning, and instead sure. are infusing those words with meaning from the secular script for masculinity. And then they end up being even worse. <laughs> Some uh. people have asked me, why would they be worse? Well, apparently, it's because they feel re religious justification. They're taking the sure. secular yeah. definition but they think they have religious justification for it. And so they end up actually being worse than, you know, the secular guy down the street. So this is what the church is up against, right? On the one hand, you know, we have men yeah. who are doing better and they need to be encouraged. But how do we reach out and disciple these men who are kind of at the fringes and mm -hmm. who are giving people the impression that, that you know, the, the, false, the false impression that evangelical men are, are particularly abusive? Sure. Uh, no, my thought was uh, earlier was that that's that's one of those cases of the end is worse than the beginning, where they yeah. they they begin but they don't progress, they don't grow, and so they actually end up being worse than they were otherwise, uh, because there is a rejection of the reality. They 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 may have marginally entered into this, but without that growth, the the end the end becomes worse than the beginning. Um, so that, that, that idea, um, when you were mentioning that, that was, that was what was going on in my mind there. Mm. Well, that's really good because it, I think it's true across the board. You know, people who kind of get a little bit of Christianity <laughs> but <laughs> right. don't, don't dive in f f uh, you know, all the way. Um, uh, uh, psycho Christian psychologists have found, for example, that... Um, Christians who are alcoholics are worse than non-Christian alcoholics. Oh, wow. And it appears to be that the additional sense of guilt, they know they're doing something that's mm. wrong. And so apparently the additional sense of guilt is also what makes them worse than the secular guy who's uh. drinking too much but doesn't have that sense of religious guilt hanging over him. 
So interesting. Yeah, the same thing. Somebody who's got a little bit of Christianity can sometimes actually be worse than a secular person. Interesting. Wow. And I wonder for our listeners who are coming to the conversation and maybe they find themselves in a marriage with a man who is a little bit on the fringes, like we're talking about, or they're wrestling with this tension. You know, we see in today's public rhetoric, there's often this men are villains, women are always victims type mentality. And they're trying to tease out, how do I approach this in a biblical way? How do I have conversations around this in a way that's filled with truth? Are there maybe a couple practical, whether it's vocabulary that we're giving them or ways to start a conversation or have a conversation? I think you know what I'm asking, right? Like these are the things that the women listening to this episode are up against. How do we encourage them today? Yeah, first of all, let me say that there are more nominals than I would have thought. So it is a more widespread problem. You know, here in America, because of the first and second great awakenings, you know, we have more Christianity, so to speak, as a cultural movement than than any other nation. But what that means is we also have more cultural Christians. Um, Mm. The the one study I found that actually put numbers on it said it's about equal. It's about equal size, Mm. you know, the committed Christian evangelical men in nominals about the same size. So yes, you are very likely to run into women who've been drawn in, who didn't know that this man was going to be a nominal. So I I do have two chapters in the book on uh, abuse in Christian homes. I, I can't I can't raise the issue and then not deal with it or people would think I was, yeah. you know, shoving it under the carpet. And the good news is that the um the language uh, has changed a lot. It wasn't that long ago that women were usually blamed when there was abuse in the home. Um, you know, what did she do to provoke him? <laughs> mm. um, and I have, unfortunately, I interviewed a lot of women for the, these chapters, and sure. a lot of them, you know, encountered that, even from Christian leaders and, you know, pastors. You know, well, he shouldn't have hit you, but what did you do to provoke him? You know? mm. um, yeah. And I can still remember, you know, when, um, when, when almost all the books were that way, if you would just submit more, if you would just be more loving, if you would just be more forgiving, if you would just make his favorite foods, if you would just lose weight and look better, <laughs> you, know, he, you know, as one pastor put it in one of my interviews, he will blossom into the man you want him to be. Uh. Well, fortunately, a lot of Christian um, theologians and therapists are starting to say, no, that actually doesn't work. It's, human nature doesn't yeah. work that way. If no. somebody is willing to hurt somebody else to get what they want... It, they're like a bully, right? And we already know yeah. that you can't acquiesce or placate a bully. They just get yeah. worse, whether it's the right. playground right. bully, you know, or whether it's in international affairs where you have a belligerent nation, you know, they tend to take forgiveness as permission. Oh, she doesn't mind this so much. Okay, fine. So fortunately, there are a number of books coming out now. I wrote the book at the right time because I had enough to draw on. Sure. <laughs> I have lots. If you're in this situation, read the end notes. There's some excellent books out now. People are starting to say, actually, the response to abuse in the Christian home is what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Mm. Jesus told us himself how to deal with actual sin. You know, somebody is sinning against you. Jesus says, well, first you call their attention to it and call it sin. You know, loving confrontation. 
And if they don't listen to you, bring a few more witnesses in. If they don't listen to them, you know, bring it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, it might be time for church discipline. So fortunately, there are more and more people writing this way. Now, what I did find when I, when I ran reading groups on my book is that people who have not experienced abuse don't understand it. They, mm, they really sure. don't. And I kept getting people saying things like, well, don't you think you should show more grace? Don't you think you should show more forgiveness? So I say, yes, of course. <laughs> you start there. <laughs> you start with showing more grace and forgiveness and, and working on your own weaknesses and working for a deeper relationship with God yourself so that you're a stronger person. All those things are, of course. But the trouble is that a lot of women have done that for years and years. And the husband is still not changing. He's still mm, yeah. being abusive. And so that's what these, these chapters are written for, is when that's the case, then it may be time for you to have a different strategy. You know, go back to Jesus' strategy and say <laughs> it's time to maybe have some kind of loving confrontation. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I was very careful. I didn't want anyone to think I was speaking from a theologically liberal position. So mm. I was careful to quote, you know, uh, very conservative organizations like Focus on the Family um, and very conservative theologians like Stephen Tracy at Phoenix Seminary. Uh, has, he's started a ministry um, to, to abused women. So mm. all that to say, it is very conservative people now who are saying, yes, a woman does have a right to stand up to abuse and the church should support her in that. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is, a, it is, is such an indictment. You know, we live in a fallen world. But yet it is such an indictment that there's, there are so many times where legitimately this happens and it gets, it gets kind of pushed under the rug or it gets ignored. And, that's, uh, and that biblically, biblically, that should not be happening. Yeah. All right. Biblically, the, we, have to, we have to address that biblically. Um, you know, when, when it is running contrary to the word of God, it's running contrary to the teachings of Jesus, it's running contrary to what... Uh, a loving husband should be doing biblically, then we ha we ha we have a moral responsibility to address that in a biblical way. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that you you mentioned, and I'm going to go back to to saving Leonardo for just a moment. Wonderful. Uh, I love that. I love that book. <laughs> so good. And you trace through the progression of changes in art over centuries. And in some cases reveal there's there's a long kind of erosion of the arts sometimes that can be connected to this long clash of worldviews that are taking place. And then in Toxic War on Masculinity, you go back and you do a similar thing where you highlight moments, key moments through history that can really only be called a long war on men. It's not something that just happened in the last 10 to 12 years. So, so what, what factors, what factors did you see, did you find that have led to this cultural moment, you know, in, 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 in short terms, how did we get here now at this place? Yeah, that's a good question because most people kind of assume that the idea of toxic masculinity arose in the 1960s, second wave feminism. No, no, no. It goes much further back. You have to go back to the Industrial Revolution because before that time, 
men worked alongside their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men focused much more on their caretaking role. In fact, here's an interesting historical fact. Most books on child rearing, on parenting, were written to men, to the oh. father. Mm. You know, if you go into a typical bookstore today, they're all written to the mothers, most of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, back then, it was the father was considered the primary parent. And he did spend as much time with his children, especially his sons, as mothers did. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's kind of hard for us to even imagine. <laughs> it takes mm-hmm. a little historical imagination, right? Um, and so uh, the, the turning point actually was the Industrial Revolution. What did it do? It took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, they were not working with people they loved, their family members, people they had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. Mm. And that's when you see the language start to change. It was a protest, actually. People were protesting that men were, men's character was changing in those circumstances, that they were becoming egocentric and self-interested and aggressive and assertive and look out for number one and make it at all costs. And even the language of idol, this was fascinating to me because um, they used, you read, you read my book, Finding Truth, where I talk about idols. Right. That, Already in the 19th century, people were complaining that men were becoming more secular and they were turning their job, their career, their financial success into an idol. And I actually have some quotes from the time because that became a common complaint. So if this is the first time, 19th century, when you start to see negative language applied to the male character. And that's why you have to go back that far. Now, mm-hmm. in my book, like you said, I have several more stages and... I'll be glad to talk about a few more, but in in a sense, that's where we need to go, and, and that's where the solution has to be. If if it started when 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 men were disconnected from the family, then clearly the solution is: can we find ways to reconnect men with their families, mm. even in an industrial age? You know, can we treat sure. the workplace? Um, I have a whole chapter on men who found ways to you know get hybrid positions work part-time from home or even just leave work early a few days to i had one graduate student he just left work early a few days a week to to um coach his son's soccer and basketball teams Mm. Ah. by the way his his uh boss accused him of coasting but he said (laughs) he said it actually did not hurt his career and when his sons grew up they said we want to be a dad like you Wow. Which is much better than any work pra- workplace rewards. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. and, and even the pandemic helped. Um, there was a Harvard study done uh, of the pandemic and found that 68% of fathers don't want to go back to the office full time. Mm. And the New York Times had an article on it. I, I was so glad they picked this up. And the, the title was something like, During the Pandemic, Fathers got closer to their children, and they don't want to lose that. Mm. So I thought, okay, wow. you know, even the secular world is starting to say, how can we yeah. help fathers get closer Certainly. to their kids? Yeah, I think we're realizing we're holding ourselves captive to a schedule and a and a an arrangement that we ourselves created, <laughs> right? And so realizing just the health that can come along with 
saying, oh, what if it was possible for me to leave at three o'clock to pick up my kids from school? Or what if it was possible for my husband to shift his work around and that enable him to coach soccer or whatever? And so I love that more of those conversations are happening. And I, I, you're putting the pieces together for me. I do think uh, I t- completely agree with you that the pandemic, I think, helped us kind of recognize that maybe in a new way. So that's that's a beautiful thing that we can be thankful for out of what was a what was a really hard season. Of yeah, life I'll for give us. sometimes an anecdote crystallizes it. So I'll give you yeah. an anecdote. <laughs> Uh, so this is also one of my graduate students. Uh, uh, she was married to an IT professional who came home during the pandemic. And because he was home, he was able to be more involved with the homeschooling. And he was he decided he would be to make the guy to make lunch every day for the family. And of course, he could then also take his kids to soccer practice and choir practice. And he picked up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife was mm. able to start a part time business. Mm. She yeah. was an opera singer, by the way. <laughs> I had a student who was an opera singer. So she started a voice <laughs> studio and the entire family benefited from the added income. So I interviewed her husband and he said, our family is so much more balanced now. I am never mm. going back to 40 hours in a cubicle. <laughs> and then the final kicker was he said, the time that I used to spend commuting to work, I now spend praying with my wife every morning. Wow. So I thought, okay, what a fantastic example of Absolutely. how we can maybe really, even today, flex the workplace in order to mm. get... And, and, and the reason I'm so keen on it is that it is the main answer to any kind of toxic behavior in men, right? I, I quote a psychiatrist who said, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers. You know, the, mm. fa- the, it's the father-son relationship that really... Well, I'll quote another psychologist. A psychologist said the love bond that was most damaged by the Industrial Revolution was the father-son bond. Wow. Because girls at least still had their mothers in the home, so they had some kind of a role model. Sure. But boys lost their role model and mm. felt you know, disconnected from the adult world. I mean, the, the father-son relationship is what gave them a role model, gave them a connection to the adult world, Gave them aspirations of what it meant, you know, to grow up and be a good man. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, a leading psychologist in the 19th century actually put it this way. He said, never, never in American history has the boy been so wild. Wild because he no longer had his father's supervision. Never has the American boy been so wild and so half-orphaned. Mm-hmm. I love that term. Wow. You know, for people who are seeing it happen, you know, we're so used to fathers being out of the home. So you've got to recover some of the sense of loss. When fathers yeah. first started leaving in the home, the, psycho- the psychologist said, our boys are half orphaned because they're now being left up to female guidance. This was his words, left up to female guidance in the home, in the church, in the school. Mm. And he said, no wonder boys are pushing back. You know, they don't, whatever structure and moral instruction that they're getting is from women. So, of course, they're not going to accept it because that makes them feel like being a moral person is to be effeminate. And so mm. that was another big part of the secularization of, this, of the masculine script is that men began to sort of um, push off you know, mm. the, the uh, society's moral messages because they were coming mostly from women. And so that was another part. You know, We talked about how the several stages in the secularization – 
the idea that women are the moral guardian society and men are not, mm. <laughs> that was a huge stage in men becoming more secular. Sure. Wow. Well, I know this conversation has just given listeners a taste of what they can find in your new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. I know our listeners are going to want to get their hands on it after they listen to this episode. But there is one final question I ask every guest that comes on the Radical Radiance podcast. Uh, The show has a heart to help women see what it looks like to radiate the heart of Jesus in their life, their work, their relationships. And it all goes back to a verse that God put on my heart in Psalm 34, it's verse five. And it says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And so Nancy, the question I love asking is what about Jesus makes you radiant? Well, it's a kind of a long answer because it's, it's, it goes back to my conversion. Mm. Um, in my book, I do tell that I, I grew up in an abusive home. Um, my father was severely physically abusive. In books on abuse, they sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? And, mm-hmm. and it was closed fist, you know, with a knuckle finger extended you know, to cause a sharper stab of pain. So, yeah, he was, he was punching and kicking us. And um, not surprisingly, um, I left my Christian faith in high school <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and actually ricocheted into extreme feminism for many years. But I became a Christian at Labrie in Switzerland, which was the Ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And I, we had lived in Europe when I was a kid, right? My dad had a job there. So all through high school, I saved my money so I could go back. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's how I ended up stumbling across Labrie, which is a, an apologetics ministry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that time, I had absorbed all kinds of secular worldviews and ideas. And it was the first place that I ever encountered Christians who could deal with those secular ideas, who had answers, mm-hmm. you know, who could show that Christianity had answers to the secular worldviews. And it was very impressive. You know, I was completely blown away. I had no idea that Christianity could be supported with good reasons and evidence. And, and so it is why I became a Christian. And I've told that story in some of my books, but there's a part of it that I have, I have not told before. And it is that it was... At Labrie was also the beginning of my spiritual, emotional healing from my childhood trauma of wow. growing up in an abusive home. Because on staff at Labrie was a psychiatric social worker. Her name was uh, Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. And I had, um, I had thought that when I left home, I could just suppress my whole past. <laughs> mm. I thought I could create a blank slate. I was going to recreate mm. myself from scratch. <laughs> And it was Bertie who helped me to see, well, it actually doesn't work that way. You know, psychologically, you know, you carry this baggage with you whether you want to or not. And so you really sure. do have to work it through. And so she really got me started on emotional healing and experience, you know, experiencing God's love in such a deep, profound way that it heals emotional wounds. Mm. And, and a lot of it was Bertie herself. I'd never experienced the quality of love that she exhibited. When I wow. left Labrie, in a sense, when I prayed, I almost imagined talking to Bertie. Now, how would you talk to Bertie? Okay, talk that way to God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's it feel like to talk to somebody who actually loves you? Oh, okay. Wow. Um, so, so it's you know, it's a long, it's a long hard haul. It takes many years. I mean, psychologists often talk about you know peeling the layers of the onion. Sure. You, you get you get healing on one level, and then it turns out there's more to do. But. When I speak, when I do public speaking now, if they let me, (laughs) I always start with my 
conversion story with my testimony. Mm. Because the older I get, the more I appreciate that God got hold of me. And yeah. mm. and at Labrie, you know, my, my Christian life started with such a good balance because I got the intellectual side of, mm. of apologetics. And, and as you know, cultural apologetics, because mm. sure. that's what Schaefer was specifically known for. And I also got that intense personal, spiritual, emotional healing. I had that from the beginning of my Christian life. Wow, and I realized, and looking back, I, I just become more and more grateful for that. So that's thinking back to my conversion makes mm. makes me radiant. It really does. That's beautiful, Nancy. I love that. Well, I want you to share with everyone where can they connect with you? Where can they grab your books? All of those things after they get done listening to this conversation. Yes, well, you can buy The Toxic War on Masculinity at Amazon, like you can get everything else there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or if you prefer, places like christianbook.com. And then my publisher very generously redesigned my website, so it's fresh and colorful. And you can come over and browse my other books. You know, we've mentioned a few of them here today, Mm -hmm. Finding Truth, Saving Leonardo, Oh, I love thy body. So we've mentioned a couple of them. Come on over and browse around and, and see what my other books are. And, oh, and it's nancypiercy.com. Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y, nancypiercy.com. And you can leave a message. I don't get to, I don't get time to answer all of them, but I, I read them all. So come on by nancypiercy.com and, and say hello. Awesome. Well, Nancy, this has been just such a joy to get to know you and have this conversation. I know we both, I can speak for us both and say we've been just so excited to meet you and have this conversation. So thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I just really sense like-minded people when I talk to you guys. Mm. So I have enjoyed it. Thank you. We have too. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Professor Nancy Piercy as much as we did. And go grab a copy of The Toxic War on Masculinity after you finish this episode. And hey, if you were listening to the episode today and you thought that someone in your life might really benefit or be encouraged by Nancy's wisdom, would you share this episode with them? And better yet, leave a rating and a written review for the podcast wherever you like to listen. If you haven't done that already, it really, really helps us get the show into more hands and ears of listeners who would be encouraged by it. So I would appreciate that so much. And we'll be back next week for another amazing episode. Same time, same place. And I'll talk to you then.